The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. MSW Media. Well, pour yourself a glass, sit for a spill. It's time to have some fun. Let's do a little thinking, some picking and a drinking. But this is what we're drinking with Dan Dunn. drinking a rum mojito that I just whipped up. Warm weather, feeling frisky, looking for something a little tropical. Here's how I made it. I took an ounce and a half of Batiste rum silver, one ounce of fresh lime juice, and a half ounce of simple syrup. I chucked about five to ten mint leaves into a shaker with some ice and everything else goes in there, and I shook the hell out of it. And I strained it into a tall glass and I topped it off with soda water. Yeah, I'm having it. I'm using Batiste rum because the brand's a big supporter of this show. And well, at least that's one reason. Mainly I use Batiste because it's delicious rum and I feel good about drinking it. It's because of the sustainability aspect. You've heard me talk about it here. Dear listener, Batiste Rum is next level when it comes to sustainability. Indeed, it is the first sustainable American craft rum. First sustainable American craft rum. They have a built-in process that generates zero durable waste. That's plastic and toxic waste. And is carbon negative from ground glass. It's the first booze in the world that does it this way. Batiste Rum is made from 100% pure fresh cane juice, unlike molasses or sugar crystals. If you like your tequila 100% agave, then you're going to like your rum 100% cane juice. Again, it's an outstanding, versatile rum with great taste and legit sustainability. That's why I'm drinking it. Hmm. If you want to learn more, I encourage you to visit BatisteRum.com. That's B-A-T-I-S-T-E-R-H-U-M. Tstrum.com. Other exciting things happening. I got a new microphone. That's right, a new microphone. I got the Shure SM7B. This is a legendary workhorse microphone. In addition to singers like Dave Grohl, Sam Smith, James Hetfield, Cheryl Crow, a bunch of big name podcasters use the SM7B. Folks like Mark Marin, Dak Shepard, Anna Faris, and Joe Rogan. And now me, I'm big time. I'm big time now. Well, we're moving on up. But seriously, how's it sound? In fact, hit me up on Instagram or Twitter. It's at the Imbiber, T-H-E-I-M-B-I-B-E-R. Let me know. I am curious to know what you think of the new sound, the new microphone. Also, you can follow the podcast's Instagram at WWD underscore 
podcast. The bars are opening back up again. This is exciting. I love bars. If you're listening to the show and you are, no doubt you love bars too. I mean, bars are found on every continent and every culture and the quickest path to a good time typically runs straight through them. They are temples of the id, a cultural pressure valve that keeps society from driving itself crazy, which is why crazy things always tend to happen in bars and why bartenders have the best stories. A good bartender is a host, bouncer, shrink, parent, stand-up, comic, and a confidant. These are people that work hard, play harder, and have quite literally seen it all. Unlike everyone else who's in the room, they were at least halfway sober when it went down and can actually remember it the next day. So for this episode, I hit up a few fantastic bartenders were kind enough to share some of their favorite stories. No sooner did I ask them than I was drowning in tales ranging from the sad to the silly to the supernatural. These stories conjure the unique textures and rhythms of the bars that birthed them, as well as the bartenders who spun them. I got a bunch. So we'll be doing this again in future episodes. But for this one, this one here, start out with a tale from New York-based bartending legend Dale DeGroff. Dale's a James Beard Award winner, best-selling author, the founder of the Museum of the American Cocktail in New Orleans. Now, this particular story takes place at one of the world's most legendary properties, the Hotel Bel Air. Ooh, fancy. Hotel Bel Air first opened in 1946 in the heart of L.A.'s most exclusive neighborhood. When I dubbed Dale's story, Hey, pal, easy on that piano. I love hotel bars. A continuous ebb and flow of humanity from all over. There's not a better place in the world to watch people. I worked in a really, really great one in Bel Air neighborhood of Los Angeles. The Bel Air Hotel in Stone Canyon. It also served as a neighborhood bar for a most extraordinary neighborhood. The Beverly Hills Hotel on Sunset Boulevard was the place to be seen, and the Hotel Bel Air was the place not to be seen. Arab chic show business personalities, captains of industry, presidents stayed in the hotel. It was JFK's favorite hideout. I started my day shift one day. It was quiet with hardly anybody in the bar. That was not unusual. Most people preferred to dine in the sumptuous dining room next door or maybe under the bougainvillea in the outdoor patio. One day, an elderly couple came into the bar and made a beeline to a corner table just around the corner because of the shape of the dining room that I couldn't see from my perch at the bar. I took the lunch order, went back to the bar, delivered their lunch. In the middle of the lounge was a Steinway baby grand piano played nightly by Bud Herman, who was 20 years on the job when I arrived at the hotel. Bud was extraordinary. He was the host of that room uh, for so many years. He even traveled with the Benny Goodman Orchestra for a bit, and the stories abound. But on this occasion, Bud called me that morning, I hadn't even really met him yet, to keep a keen eye on the piano. The lock broke the night before, and, and until he could get it fixed, he didn't want people banging on the thing. So I kind of lost track of my diners over there in the corner, and I looked up just as the old gentleman was seating himself at the piano. I light-footed as quickly as I could to his side as he was raising the fall board over the keys. And just before his fingers hit the keys, I said, Excuse me, sir. I'm sorry. I know you probably play beautifully, 
but the regular piano player, Bud Herman, has let me know that the lock was broken last night on the piano and he would prefer that people not play it during the day when he's not here. I went on to say if he'd care to return in the evening, Mr. Herbert Herman often invites guests to, to join, to, to, to play the piano. Well, the gentleman was very understanding. He went back to his table. And when I came to pay the bill, he handed me his credit card. While I was processing it, processing it I noticed the name. Vladimir Horowitz, and my heart jumped into my throat. I quickly called the desk, hoping against hope that this was not the Vladimir Horowitz. But this was the Hotel Bel Air, and of course, it was the Vladimir Horowitz in town for a concert. And I returned to Mr. Horowitz's table, and I apologized and rescinded my edict, commenting that I was probably the only person in the world who ever told him not to play the piano. He smiled, but still demurred. Sometimes I even travel with my piano on important concerts, he said, and I completely agree with Mr. Herman's directive. And that is how I deprived myself of a private concert from one of the greatest piano player virtuosos who ever lived. And when I finally moved to the night shift, Bud would invite me to retell the story for his friends once in a while, and it would sometimes prime the well, and the stories would flow. Because that's what bartenders do. The great Dale DeGroff. Just hearing him talk inspires a story I have. Involves Dale. About 20 years ago, a magazine editor offered me a rather unusual assignment. Trek to Turin in northern Italy to report on an event called the International Flair Bartending Competition. The lost art of flair bartending, you may recall, was immortalized in cocktail. The 1988 film starring Tom Cruise as a smirking, diminutive TGI Friday's grade bartender named Brian Flanagan, who over the course of 103 minutes discovers he can get with attractive women if he doesn't just pour their drinks, but juggles them first. The IFBC, the editor assured me, would be like cocktail on steroids, which I took to mean like Top Gun, only with flying bottles instead of planes. Whole thing sounded so ridiculous that I had no choice but to accept the assignment. And before you could say, I make drinks so sweet and snazzy, the iced tea, the kamikaze, I was off to Turin, where the top tippled tossers in the world put on a dazzling display of flipping, flaming, flinging, and flying. Oh, I learned so much. Too much? Did I learn too much? Maybe about flair bartending that week. First and foremost, it's clearly an activity best left to professionals. You know the old saying, don't try this at home? Well, seriously, don't. There are heavy, breakable objects involved, and fire, and flammable liquids. And why bother with stunts anyway, when, as I also discovered on that trip, there are far less dangerous, more civilized ways to impress with cocktails. So one of the judges at this competition was Dale DeGroff. And back when the fictional Brian Flanagan was waxing poetic on the big screen about the sex on the beach and schnapps made from peach, over at New York City's Rainbow Room, the very much real-life Dale was orchestrating a revolution. And in Turin, again, 20 years ago, Dale introduced me to a wealth of libational pleasures, opening my eyes to the beauty of well-made classic cocktails. He got me to try my first Negroni, at Cafe Torino, and my second, and my third, and it was a revelation. 
Seriously, three basic ingredients, gin, sweet vermouth, and Campari that when stirred into one make for a most delectable aperitivo. And remember, by the way, if you are drinking Negronis, the orange twist garnish is sacred. It's an essential part of this cocktail, and if you're tempted by lemons, oh, resist. Anyway, like most people my age at the turn of the century, my idea of a sophisticated cocktail was a fuzzy navel with a twist. Now, what's come to be known as the craft cocktail revolution was just starting to slather on the mustache wax back in 2000. So Dale regaled me with tales of the bar industry's dark ages and how cocktail motivated him to try and rescue the world's tap rooms from the skinny tie-wearing hordes depicted in that movie. He urged me to write about drinks like The Blood and Sand, which was named after a 1922 bullfighting film starring Rudolph Valentino and Rita Hayworth. This is one of the few scotch-based libations you can turn to for refreshment on a hot summer's day. Anyway, I took Dale's advice, and before long I had business cards that read Cocktail and Spirits Writer. Believe me, it's a job nobody mentioned on career day back in high school. That classic cocktail resurgence that Dale DeGroff predicted indeed came to pass, and I wound up with a vocation that is, you know, at times wonderful and at times brutal and dangerous and a great excuse for debauched behavior. For that, hangovers notwithstanding, I'm eternally grateful. To the editor that sent me to Turin, to the great Dale DeGroff and the IFBC, and whoever it was that made me those tantalizing Negronis at Cafe Torino. To paraphrase a famed barman poet, you've completed me. It's that time of year again, New Year's. It's that time of year where we make those resolutions about dropping weight, answering our mom's calls, staying in touch with friends. It always feels like the perfect time to refocus on what we want in life, but it's easy to get stuck looking back on all of the resolutions we didn't keep last year. This year, there's one resolution I am definitely keeping, and that's making my mental health a priority. Make it part of your daily routine with Talkspace. Talkspace personally matches you with a licensed therapist you could connect with right from your phone or computer. I've been in therapy for years, but it's always been so challenging to find the right person. I've bounced around to different therapists and it's always, does this one take my insurance? Is this one close to my house? With Talkspace, you can do it from the comfort of your own home. Listen, everyone could use someone to talk to. I personally deal with some anxiety and my problem at night is those racing thoughts that I can't turn off. I'm up all hours of the night thinking about everything that everyone ever said to me and how am I going to get through this? My therapist at Talkspace taught me some really awesome breathing techniques that help me calm my mind, calm my body, and give me a more restful sleep. Connecting with a licensed therapist on Talkspace can help you feel better and it's secure. No one's going to hear what you say and that's the best part. Let all that talk fly. Unlike traditional therapy, Talkspace fits your schedule, not the other way around. Talkspace treats your privacy and security as their top priority. You get access to private virtual room with just you and your therapist. You can send your therapist messages 24-7 and get replies throughout the day. No need to wait for that weekly appointment. You owe it to yourself to make mental health a priority this year. And Talkspace makes it easy to keep. 
Visit Talkspace.com and get $100 off your first month when you use promo code STARBURNS at sign up. That's S-T-A-R-B-U-R-N-S. That's $100 off at Talkspace.com, promo code STARBURNS. Hi, I'm Allison Janney, and you're here with me on What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. And that's my sexy voice. Boom. There's nothing virtual about a bar. The rest of the world ties itself in increasingly complex digital knots. Most bars still operate the way they did 20 or even 50 years ago. I'm talking about pre-COVID. Now they're operating on a... a plane I don't want to I, I just want to go away but I, I'm talking about pre-COVID and hopefully after COVID and you know, look people do bring their phones along uh, but we feel like we see less digital diversion in bars than in any other place like what happens in bars is and always has been real and that's why I love this next story it's about a real interaction it's gonna probably thrill all the sci-fi nerds out there it's from uh, my friend Kiwa Brian who's a Vermont native and former figure skater. She's been involved with a a series of high-profile bars and restaurants since she got to L.A. in 2010. And I just enjoy this story so much. It's so L.A. And there's something about it I love. So here's Kiowa. When I worked at the Evely in West Hollywood, we had a label maker, as you do, to make labels and organize things and whatnot. But I chose to use this toy uh, as a tool to print out funny, stupid labels for my staff on, you know, busy weekends to kind of boost the morale and give us all an inside joke to laugh about. One day I decided to take my love for Star Wars and put it into these weekend name tags. So I printed up a string of like boozy, stupid, punny characters from Star Wars. So that night we had Luke Sky Vodka, Boba Fernet, uh, Han Soko and Lime, and naturally I was Princess Lilea. So uh, the evening was off to a normal start when um, somebody walked in the bar and asked me about my name tag, and I, you know, explained this is situation and this is this, you know, silly thing we do every weekend. And he was like, "Well, you're going to be uh, pretty excited in about 20 minutes." And I was like, "Well, what do you mean?" Uh, but he wouldn't tell me. So. You know, we had quite a few Star Wars nerds that worked at the Evely, so we all kind of got together and took bets on who was going to walk in the door. And then about 20 minutes later, I heard a woman yell across the bar at me and say, Princess Leia, is that you? And I, you know, turned around about to be like, no, I'm Princess Lilea, when um, I looked around and it was actually Carrie Fisher. Which, you know, my jaw dropped to the floor, um, and I could not believe this. Then what are the odds that Carrie Fisher is coming into the Evelie the day that I have this Princess Lilea name tag on? It was uh, pretty, pretty amazing. Um, so anyway, she asked me about it. She was like, well, I don't know what the fuck Lilea is. Um, so I, I showed her the bottle and explained it to her. She really did not care, but she thought it was hilarious. So then she ordered a Princess Pretty Kitty. I was like, I do, I'm sorry, I don't know what that is. And apparently it's a half Coke and a half Diet Coke. I'm pretty sure she made that up. But anyway, her and what I think was her agent who was waiting for her, they went into the front garden and they sat there with her princess pretty kitty. Every 20 minutes or so, she'd come and like yell across the bar on a busy Friday night, like walk into the 
head of the bar and just yell at me, hey, Princess Leia, can I get another Princess Pretty Kitty for, you know, at least four or five times. And uh, it was, you know, uh, as somebody who's lived in L.A. and bartended in L.A. for, you know, 12 years or so, um, that was by far the coolest, like, celebrity thing that has ever, ever uh, happened to me. And as a massive Star Wars fan, um, it was pretty pretty remarkable um and uh i shall miss carrie fisher forever um r.i.p you will always be my rebel leader next up we have a story from charles hardwick bartender from New York City, one of the best there is, and eh, another one that will probably stir all sorts of emotions. One of the strangest things that happened to me in the early 90s was at a place in New York City's East Village called Around the Clock. It was a crazy clientele, and we had crazy hours. A bunch of rock and roll people lived in the neighborhood and would come in all the time. In fact, Joe or Ramon would have breakfast there almost every day. This particular event happened one night when my girlfriend happened to be visiting me. Between talking to her and making drinks at one end of the bar, I was also intermittently eating my dinner off of a plate I had next to the beer taps. Suddenly, I got a bunch of orders for the service bar, and when I came back from taking care of them, there was a guy sitting at the bar near where my food was. He was dressed kind of grungy, which was his style at the time. He was skinny, hair messed up just so. In fact, he looked kind of like Jeff Buckley, if Jeff Buckley didn't have a huge record deal. Anyway, I went and moved my food out of his way and took his order, which was a Corona and a shot of Corvo. As I was getting his drinks, my girlfriend gave me one of those wide-eyed, we-need-to-talk-in-private looks. Conveniently, I had to get something at her end of the bar, so I walked over and leaned in close to hear what she had to say. That guy just ate some food off of your plate she said. At this point, I should probably mention that this was not like someone grabbing a french fry or a tater tot off of someone's plate. My meal was a stir fry of chicken, rice, and veggies, though this guy had likely picked up my fork and used it to eat my food. It was a very weird position to be in. He hadn't really stolen anything of significant value, nor had he ruined my food, but he had violated a pretty clear social norm. You don't eat off of someone else's plate without their permission. You just don't. I guess the guy saw us talking because as I walked back toward him, he had this look like a puppy that just wet the carpet. I wasn't sure what I was going to say to him, but I knew I had to say something. Thankfully, he made the first move and waved me over. Hey, man, I'm really sorry. I I, I don't know what to say. Yeah, I replied. What's the deal? Is that just something you do? Go to restaurants and eat off of other people's plates? He looked at me for a minute. Then he sort of sighed and said, yeah. And he wasn't being a wise ass. He genuinely was ashamed, but admitted to doing this. Has anyone ever told you that's considered rude? I asked him. I'm really sorry, man, he replied and went back to drinking his Corona. He didn't rush it, but since he had already paid, he left once he was finished. 
A couple of days later, the same guy comes in again. When he saw me, he smiled a little with recognition and said, Hey man, how you doing? I wasn't sure where this was going. Was he going to apologize again? I think I left my credit card here last night, he said. Do you guys have it? It's green. I looked at the forgotten credit cards we kept clipped to the register, and sure enough, there was one green one. As I held the card up, I asked him what his name was. He said, my name is Jeff Buckley. As I gave it to him, he nodded and said, thanks, man. See you soon. He left, and I never saw him again. Well, I heard there was a secret chord The day that played and it pleased the Lord But you don't really care for music, do you? Hello, it's me, Steffi Puffinfeet. So, I have this crazy story for you I think you're going to enjoy. I, one night, I'm working at this pub and... This shit cunt comes sits in my bar, and right away he's super annoying, like so annoying, and he's pissing everybody off, like all the customers, like bartenders, everybody. Uh, anyway, so he orders some chicken wings, and when he gets the chicken wings, he looks at me, he looks at me, and goes, "Or oh, I need a bib for these," and I'm like, "What? You need a you need a bib?" Like, are you six years old? I don't understand. But he's being super pushy about it. And he's saying, he's starting to say, oh, I can't eat these unless I have a bib. I'm not going to pay my bill. And he's starting to get, like, real angry. I'm like, oh, shit, okay, hold on. Like, calm down, man. And my good mate, Tommy, he's working beside me tonight. He goes, like, oh, comes over. What seems to be the problem over here? I go, this gentleman needs a bib. Or canning his wings, apparently. And I swear, without missing a beat, Tommy pops under the bar, into the restroom. And a minute later, Tommy comes back with one of those, like, paper toilets he covers, right? And hands it to him. It's all, like, neatly folded. Hands it to him. The guy happily puts it around his neck with a big fucking smirker on his face. Looks at me like I'm the idiot. <laughs> and I'm like, all right. Well, I, this guy got his fucking bib. After we close that night... We're having a good laugh about it. And I'm like, Tommy, like, how'd you come up with that? He goes, or those things are designed to go around assholes. It did its job perfectly. Steffi Puffinfeet has an interesting accent. Sort of a Kiwi-Northern California hybrid. Wonder how that happened. I'm going to bring this home. I got one more story for you, and I'll tell it. One of mine. Meeting your favorite celebrity is always great in theory, but a lot of times it's just disappointing, you know. There are exceptions, and the gold standard of those exceptions is Bill Murray. Bill's been known to crash random karaoke parties, he gives impromptu speeches at bachelor parties and weddings, he's joined strangers in cinematic slow walks. He's like the anti-Mel Gibson. Approachable, laid back, and obviously very comfortable in his own skin, so... The universe gifted me my own unforgettable Bill Murray moment years ago when I ran into him at a rooftop bar inside the Huntley Hotel in Santa Monica. Bill was sitting alone at the bar, and 
I'd met him before uh, through mutual friends, so I took a shot, went up, and reintroduced myself. Not only did he remember me, or at least do a hell of a job acting as though he did, he told me to pull up a stool. So we drank and shot the shit for what felt like ages, and I recall polishing off a few bottles of expensive red wine, and could have been, I don't know, three, maybe. Then something happened that I could never forget, no matter how much wine I'd had. This woman recognized Bill and, and asked if he'd mind if she took a picture of him to send to her sister. She said her sister was the world's biggest Bill Murray fan. And this woman was so nervous, she trembled as she took the picture. And then she apologized, started to leave. But Bill wasn't having any of that. Like, where are you going? And she was, oh, I don't want to bother you. And he waves the bartender and says, can I get a glass for my friend? And he pours her a glass of wine. And then he asked if she wanted him to call her sister. She just didn't know what to do. She hemmed and hawed a little, but when it looked like he was serious, she she dialed her sister up and she, yeah, no, no, it's Bill Murray. I swear it's Bill Murray. It, it really is. And once she convinced her sister, she she gave the phone over to Bill and I watched him spend a solid 10 minutes making a stranger in somewhere, Indiana, feel like a million bucks. And that's going to do it for this episode. First part of our bar stories. We're going to do more of these in the future. I want to thank Dale DeGroff, Kiwa Bryan, Steffi Puffin Feet, and Charles Hardwick for giving of themselves so that we might be entertained. Of course, I want to thank you. Check me out at the Imbiber on Instagram at WWD underscore podcast. If you get a chance, you know, subscribe, rate, review. Those things help push us forward into the stratosphere i need you friends i need you and please send me any questions and comments i'll I'll read them on the show i'll address them right here until next time toodaloo